0: Many people made the European Enlightenment, but probably nobody better represents the movement spirit than the French writer and philosopher Voltaire.
1: He kind of represents a self-invented man, a man of many parts in the sense that he isn't just a comic and satirical writer. He really became a serious literary figure for writing classical theatrical tragedy. His first success was... A play about Oedipus, you know, in the grand tradition of French classical theater, and uh, and a poet. He wrote long epic poems. So comedian, essayist, playwright, poet. In that sense, he embodies the whole of the Enlightenment, a man of letters. I'm Carla Hesse, I'm a professor at UC Berkeley of History.
0: In 1759, Voltaire published one of his best-known works, Candide. In this satirical fable, Voltaire used current events of the day, like the Seven Years' War and the 1755 Lisbon earthquake, to explore larger philosophical questions, such as how could there be evil in a world created by a benevolent God.
1: Candide is, in some ways, a kind of summa of mid-century enlightenment, the moment of the High Enlightenment. Um, it's it. It sort of reduces to its essence both the contemporary headlines of the middle of the 18th century and also tells a timeless fairy tale, a fairy tale with a philosophical point. It's not the first philosophical tale, and it's not Voltaire's first philosophical tale. He didn't invent the genre, but he perfected it. I don't think there's been a better example of the genre.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Carla Hesse to discuss Candide. Voltaire was born François-Marie Arouet in Paris in 1694. His father was a lawyer, and his mother was from a noble family.
1: So he came from a, a well-heeled family, went to the very best uh Lycée High School in France, Louis Le Grand. Um, his father, of course, wanted him to be a lawyer, and he, like most fathers, and he studied the law. But um, being at the Lycée Louis Le Grand put him in the fastest circles in Paris. He was developed a well-connected circle of friends and networks, and he felt passionately in love with theater.
0: Despite this gilded background, Voltaire felt compelled to create an alternative literary persona,
1: He claimed that he was the illegitimate son um, of an officer poet. Uh, So he already had started to invent himself as a literary figure and even a literary character uh, in his teens. He took the name Voltaire somewhat later. I think he took the name Voltaire when he was in his late 20s, early 30s.
0: It's not clear as to how he picked the name Voltaire but some scholars have pointed out that it is an anagram of his birth name in Latin, Arovet Lee. Voltaire was a witty and fearless writer. Such qualities made him immensely popular, but it also got him in constant trouble with the targets of his ridicule, mostly governmental and religious authorities. He found refuge from such trouble in the intellectual salons in Paris.
1: Much of his writing and work circulated First, in these conversational circles, in aristocratic households, we think of them, we know them as salons, where that were relatively isolated from the constraints either of the court, the royal courts of Europe, or from the constraints of police surveillance, out of deference to the stature of the aristocratic sponsors and patrons.
0: And was he supporting himself through sales of his writings
1: or were patrons giving him money? All of those, all of the above. And also some pretty shrewd investments he made. He 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 was a good businessman, but as I said, he grew up in a, a well-to-do household and he had he had resources of his own. So unlike some of the other great philosophs, Rousseau most notoriously and notably, he he had relative financial independence. Rousseau or Diderot were much more vulnerable to either the whims of patronage or the vagaries of a nascent literary market. He's really the first of these polymathic men of letters, relatively independent from the vestigial institutions of monarchical culture, whether it is the academies or the university system which was still dominated, of course, by religious religious thinkers and, and scholars, theologians, who are the bane of, of their existence. And Voltaire was fearless, and perhaps some of his fearlessness did come from the fact that he was, relatively speaking, more socially protected. Voltaire was
0: relatively protected, but he didn't escape government censure entirely. In 1750, Frederick II, king of Prussia, invited Voltaire to his court to be his chamberlain, essentially his estate manager. Frederick gave Voltaire a generous salary and a place to live in his palace. This arrangement worked for a little while, but eventually Voltaire and Frederick butted heads, and Voltaire resigned from the position. At this point, Voltaire was also banned from Paris by Louis the Fifteenth, and he spent three years essentially exiled. A few years later, he wrote Candide. So, Candide what is this book?
1: It's a fairy tale, in a sense, written from real life because it's set in contemporary Europe. It's sort of written from history. It's written from the headlines and it's written from Voltaire's own personal experiences, wandering for three years, cast out by Frederick II, unwelcomed by Louis XV back into France. He spends three years before he settles in Geneva and writes Candide, really homeless as a political refugee in exile. And so his, his hero, the innocent and optimistic Candide is in some sense, Voltaire himself. So it's an effort to awaken the conscience of humanity. And it's a response to a philosophical position, the dictum that this is the best of all possible worlds.
0: This dictum comes from the German polymath Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Leibniz was trying to find an answer to a question that had plagued Christians for centuries. If the world was created by a benevolent God, why does evil exist? Leibniz proposed the idea that God created evil for a reason. Evil helps us appreciate the good. After all, without bad, what is good? Without dark, what is light? According to Leibniz, God is all powerful, so he could have made a world without evil, but he knew that evil was necessary. So therefore, Leibniz figures that this must be the best of all possible worlds.
1: Voltaire's reply is that it may be the best possible world that God could have created, which was the proposition of Leibniz, his foil for the text. But he says, and but is an important word for Voltaire, humans could make it at least slightly better. and. In any event, probably they needn't make it worse. So he, in a sense, sets the philosophical problem aside and says, that may be true. And therefore, what? But at least you could bring me some oil. At least you could bring me a balm. At least we could grow some fruit. So it's, it's an effort to turn humanity back on to itself. And to encourage a less, what he would think of as egotistical relationship to God. God may have started this world, but everything he does isn't for our purpose. And I think that's one of the hardest, harshest medicine, the harshest bit of his medicine, which is that God may just be indifferent to humanity. The silence of God is something that He wants us to profoundly take in. Of course, the church condemned this tale instantly um, as a an act of heresy um, and also, of course, of immorality because it's a pretty ribaldrous tale with lots of rape and murder and sex and love and. Worldly passions and interests, um, but it isn't really an irreligious text in the strictly deistic sense. He didn't give up on God. He just thought maybe God had given up on man, and we'd had we have to face it.
0: Could you take us through the story, um, at least in its
1: broad broad art? Candide is the story of a young man, orphaned, who is attached to the household of a baron in Westphalia. In Germany, um, a place Voltaire doesn't have much high regard for. thinks of as an uncivilized part of Europe. He falls in love; it's a classic fairy tale with the Baron's daughter, and he's caught kissing her behind a screen and summarily kicked out of the house. And he's then left to tramp around Europe on his own, and it becomes a picturesque tale of his tramping around not only Europe but but the entire globe. It's the first, in some sense, globalized fairy tale. He's accompanied on this global adventure, which is an attempt to seek his fortune and to find again, to be reunited again with his great beloved Kunigen. He's accompanied for the first half of the tale by his tutor, the philosopher Pangloss, who is a spoof on a Leibnizian philosopher who continues to maintain through the whole tale that it is the best of possible worlds, no matter how horrible everything is going around them. And a lot of horrible things are going on around them. Um, The Lisbon earthquake, auto de fe conducted by the Inquisition, storms at sea, uh, battles of the war of Austrian succession, rapes, pillages. And Voltaire creates this remarkable, picaresque, epic fairy tale in which in the end, after traveling to the new world, after entering utopias and exiting utopias, after finding wealth and losing wealth, after making friends and parting with friends, the whole cast of characters is reunited somewhere in the Far East. And in an odd reversal of a fairy tale, He's finally reunited with his beloved Kunigen, who has now lost all of her beauty and has become kind of a fickle and sour woman. So it's a brilliant flip on a fairy tale. The princess has become a toad rather than the toad becoming a prince. And and, and yet, as he says, and yet she's also become a brilliant pastry chef. So the moral of the tale is appearances matter less than people who are engaged in good and useful things, like making excellent tarts.
0: So I uh, read this, this book, I think when I was 16, so it's been a long time. But I do remember the, the ending, I think, which is that they finally come to a little, little spot on the earth and are uh, able to till their garden, to, to cultivate their garden. Um, And I've, I've heard, you know, that kind of uh, ending referenced in pieces of writing all the time. One must cultivate one's garden. Um, And I guess I, I thought I knew what I thought it meant, which is um, kind of the best we can hope for in life is to modestly make our little corner of the world slightly better. Um, And, you know, that we shouldn't kind of have grand dreams because they will be foiled by the tragic nature of, of reality.
1: Um, But is that, is that how you read it? I think that's the essence of it. The great moral themes there are doing a little bit to make the world a better place in the face of indifference is, is the best we can, the best we can hope for. To ask for more is Probably to invite danger, so I think it's it's excellent medicine for our own time because it's a screed against social cruelty in the face of uncertainty. And I think, for that reason, teaching it now, uh, I think is 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 more exigent than it's been um, in past years. I've been teaching the text for thirty years, but in this moment of pandemic and global warming and of all sorts of things that. Feel beyond the control of humans. the The message of Voltaire is that the only thing worse than reality is the denial of reality, and human indifference to suffering. And so I think it it still has that that sense of hope. And so and hope is an important word. Um, so the cultivation of your own garden is in part about resignation. It is a fatalism in it. But I think the magic of the text is that hope transforms fatalism into optimism. And so an idea that could seem very harsh and a philosophical um, disposition that could seem very dark, which is to say, God may be indifferent. The world is full of all sorts of uncertain things and suffering that we haven't really inflicted on ourselves earthquakes hurricanes pandemics we could become very fatalistic or pessimistic but human capacity for hope the human restlessness that human sense of incompleteness is is i think the deepest deepest insight so when i teach this text one of the questions i ask my students is why does candide leave El Dorado, the great utopian land that he discovers in Peru. And everything's perfect. It's the world, in some sense, that Voltaire hopes that the great enlightened monarchs of Europe will create, a world without lawyers, a world of immense material uh, prosperity, a world of science, a world where religion is reduced to being grateful to God rather than seeking and begging in some selfish way for God to do something for you. Why does he leave? Why doesn't Candide just say, ah, we've arrived at perfection. And if you read the text carefully, he, he says, we'll just be forgotten here. No one will know. Um, And besides, we could take all this immense wealth and go out in the world and do good things with it. That sense of, fear of boredom, the human desire to keep going, to do more, that restlessness in humanity. He captures something, I think, really deep that anthropologists now would call the human need to feel incomplete, which sets us apart from all other species. This sense that we're we're an unfinished product. So, yeah, I guess
0: when I remembered... This text, so, so Pangloss is coming along and is just hilariously kind of denying the problems or just sort of explaining them away in this very naive way that this is how it's supposed to be. This is really perfect. You just you just don't see things from God's perspective. So on, on the one hand, that view is wrong because it's not facing reality. It's, it's denying the truth. As you've pointed out, um, there is a kind of celebration of human resilience. Uh, you can like take a lick and keep on keep on going to the next thing.
1: So you know you can read, "It is the best of all possible worlds" as "What is is right," or you can read it in a more restrained way, which I think Voltaire does. What is is. It just is what it is, and you don't have to put that moral spin on it. And if you read it as what is, is, then it is possible, even if this is the best possible now, to be possibly a little bit better. <laughs> and, and it's that release from determinism. And I think what he objected to in the Leibnizian position is this sense of determinism and a sort of scholasticism that you can explain even the human delusion of free will away. (laughs) If we believe in free will, God must have made us believe in free will, but God's just making a fool of us really because it's all in his plan. And that can lead to a kind of cynicism, um, pessimism, fatalism. And that's where I think this idea of hope and of incompletion of imminence the human need to keep carrying on is 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 the most comforting uh, moral that can be taken away at the end of the
0: story candide learns this valuable truth
1: you know the interesting thing about the garden is they don't stop talking about philosophy the story hasn't ended they keep talking about pessimism with martin is still there pangloss is still there but Candide has grown up. He doesn't need a single answer now. He just needs a conversation that will continue to enlighten and deepen.
0: So if if Voltaire represents the argument that we can reduce cruelty, especially the cruelty that we inflict on one another, um, he also is just so famously against the Catholic Church against uh, institutional church. So did he think that, um, was he opposed to them partly because they, they prevented people from believing that they could do something about suffering and they thought too much about the afterlife and accepted the status of this world too much?
1: He was anti-clerical mostly because he saw that, you know, in the effort to impose religious conformity, um, they reduce themselves to hideous acts of, of cruelty. Um, so he was for a church of forgiveness, of tolerance, um, an acceptance of human fallibility, rather than an effort to create a theocracy or any kind of city of God on earth. And I think that's that's what he didn't like about institutionalized religion, uh, and not just, of course, Catholic, but they were the most immediate and and you know at that time religious religious strife was at a they had was at a at a at a climax in the 1750s um, internecine conflicts but between dissenting forms of catholicism and the jesuits uh, uh, who were the more dominant um uh sect at court and and influence at the court but this is true from the very beginning of his career even in high school he wrote a a little poem he you know his great love was science he said you know molinist Thomist, scottist they're all sects. there are no sects in geometry one of his little ditties from high school and uh and i often you know think of that that he believed that science could reveal truths and even truths that were, that there were law-like forms of nature, but that that wasn't going to, to free us from the problem of suffering. I think in the end of the day, he didn't have a utopian view of science that it would be able to produce a world of El El Dorado, that there is evil afoot in the world. And I think he was, he left up in the air. He left unanswered the question of whether that was of divine creation or not. But many theologians believe that, that evil was part of the God's plan um, and that it creates the moral drama for humanity. And in that sense, he's not, as I said, I don't think he's an anti-Christian. He's not a, an atheist. He's a deist. He What he objects to is the sort of narcissism of the church's relationship to God as though they know and that they are it you know they are agents of the divine and that somehow they they have a privileged relationship to to God's plan, and therefore the right to impose it, no matter how much suffering that their imposition creates on others.
0: Let's finish out uh, Voltaire's life. So he he published Candide. And um, what did the rest of his life look like?
1: Well, Candide is, in some ways, the beginning of his greatest period of, of productivity, and especially his philosophical writings. And, you know, it's important to say that this book was a bestseller. It went through 20 editions in its first year. Voltaire Bibliography is notoriously difficult because he was pirated so quickly. So, but it was a mixed critical reception for some of the reasons we've been talking about. Of course, the church condemned it, but there were other people who thought it was just too scatological, um, not formally uh, structured enough, even though the prose has a certain whiff of his classicism and it's very spare, very economical. His descriptions of battle scenes, in particular, could come right out of a classical tragedian. But, but he spent the rest of his life fighting the good fight. He published in the face of being banned from his distance and relative safety in Switzerland. But he intervened in the two great religious dramas or dramas of religious persecution, the aid at the bar and then the poor Kalas family. Um, whose son committed suicide and they were accused of murdering him and their family was destroyed. So he became a kind of champion of the persecuted, you know, the original champion for writers at risk and for thinkers at risk.
0: In Candide, Voltaire frees us from the naive optimism that there is a perfect order to things. Instead, he encourages us to embrace the imperfect nature of reality, and our limited ability to do much about it. Yet, by cultivating our own little gardens, we can still bring forth flowers.
1: I think he was an incitement to human improvement in all sorts of arenas. And, you know, I said he was a bestseller. Probably 20, somewhere between 20 and 40,000 copies of this flooded. And, you know, people read it out loud and passed it around. And, you know, he becomes an inspiration for... The abolitionist movement. He becomes an inspiration, obviously, for religious toleration and giving people courage to stand up to human cruelty. I would think of him as somebody who affected almost a one-man great awakening um, of moral compassion. And and I think the text just keeps on providing that. Um, Like I said, I think it's probably the best medicine we have ...against the disease of social cruelty, which I think is probably the biggest disease of our time.
0: Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Ferrandu. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production... You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.